Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of Climactic. You may have been expecting the next episode in the Act on Climate miniseries. Last week's Act on Climate meeting was actually held in a pub right before a candidates forum. And even though it would have been a little noisy and a little different recording than previously, it would have been okay. <laughs> but I went ahead and forgot some of my gear that day. Though, in my defense, I had been walking around all day in the sun putting up flyers for Act on Climate. So, I didn't have a recording but I did have an interview with Kate, one of the main members of the Act on Climate Collective, and I thought this might be a really good opportunity to actually hear the story from someone who does this work, why they care so much, why it's so important to them. I was really happy with how this episode turned out. Kate's a really good storyteller, and this really deserves to be one of the numbered episodes of the show, but because we had this gap, I decided to drop it in here, and so really you're getting two climactic episodes for the week. So I hope you enjoy this, and if you know anybody who's interested in activism, what it's actually like to be an activist. I think this would be a really good resource for them. All right, let's get into it. There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia sweltered through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. It's the rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. The clock, you have to move all the bits and you never lines up properly. So I was moving the clock, then I was changing over my computer, then I was moving the board, and then I was like... Just... So you did the whole um, projecting and on the board thing, right? Yeah. yeah. In my entire day. It's uh... like... It's a... Crucial campaigner skill is <laughs> how to making. make a banner. Yeah, how how to make a banner and how to not like lose your cool whilst making a banner. <laughs> well, it's good practice because I mean, I, I saw on one of the drop sheets there's a cut in it. So I was really curious <laughs> yeah. if like if we ever had somebody come up and like you know just cut our <laughs> banners because like what would you do like how do you respond to that? I know I know. Well, I don't know if it's particular friends of the Earth campaigns, but I know people have had banners nicked and mm. destroyed like yanked out of hands by angry security guards. Um, I'm certain that in the history of campaigns, someone's had a banner, you know, assaulted. Yeah. <laughs> but um, it happens every weekend in the States at high school football games. I'm sure like <laughs> yeah. banners and mascots. Yeah. Like, <laughs> if you can take the other army's <laughs> flag, you win. Right. Well, thing. That's, I mean, I was talking about that actually with someone today about how it kind of, it does make you a target. Cause the whole point of a banner is that it's you're visible. It draws, you want people to pay attention to you and you want them to realize that you're for a specific campaign or for a mm-hmm. specific message. And of course, that's generations activism, generations before. It's like, it actually reminds me of like ecosystems, not to get too yeah, like too. deep, but, yeah. um, you I'm know, <laughs> you walk into like a forest or something and it's not just the trees like that are immediately growing. You're also seeing like the undergrowth and like the, the decomposing matter and like the soil. And it's basically like that. It's, that's what the office is. I mean, you look in the storeroom and you've, the, the stuff at the front is the campaigns we're using now. But then the further back you go, it's like the older and older the campaign, but it's like, you never know if you're going to need a giant owl costume again, or you never know if you're going to need when, that. When do you not need a giant owl I know. costume? That's fair enough. <laughs> but that's like the impression I get of this place. Mm. Whenever I come here is you're always going to see something new and something that like, you're like, ooh, that's interesting. I want to join that campaign. Oh, wait, that's from ages ago. It's defunct. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And it's from Western Australia, but it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So yeah, ecosystem is a beautiful metaphor for it. I would say like, oh, it's like a living museum because like nothing's cordoned off. It's not behind a glass mm. case. It's just there. Yeah. Yeah. You pick up a piece of uh, scrap paper and there could be like people's handwritten notes from three decades on it. Yeah. We don't throw stuff out here. No, just we reuse it. <laughs> over and over and, and over, over and over and over and over. <laughs> so in that description, which is beautiful, you're very good at painting words. <laughs> Thank you. You know, painting images <laughs> with your words. You didn't say it was your second home, which I kind of think this place is to you. Like, uh, whenever I'm yep. in here, you're here. <laughs> yep. So how much of your time Second you home here? would imply it's not my first home. Uh, so. True, true. <laughs> not, not to rank the homes. No, totally. Yeah. Um, yeah, I've kind of, like, just, like, signed myself up to volunteer here, like, on Mondays. Like, I, I usually will come in for specific campaign nights or training or, like, meetings. But now I'm like, whatever, I'm just going to be here on Mondays. And everyone's just like, cool, because that's, like, the atmosphere. They're like, oh, sweet, more hands on deck because you always need more hands on deck. So what do you find yourself sort of jumping into on Mondays? Is it conversations with people or are you helping out with other groups or what do you do? Well, mostly I'm doing um, Act on Climate stuff, which is the campaign that I'm a part of and I know has been on a previous episode of Climactic. We're like a really awesome like beginning campaign. So we're just like a, a scrappy bunch of awesome campaigners, but there's always so much to do and that's the thing with campaigns, like the bigger a campaign gets, like even if you have a lot of people, there's always going to be more stuff to do, which is great. Like that's the whole point of it is that, you know, going, going back to ecosystems, it's always like sprouting off new branches and roots and everything. Um, but a consequence of that is that sometimes I don't even like give, assign stuff most of the days. I just come up and like, right, what needs to be done? And today it was paint a banner. And a few weeks ago it was make a giant magnifying glass for our you know, climate detectives action. And so I spent the entire day just making a magnifying glass. You know, I thought I was going to come in and do emails or like write a flyer, but we needed a magnifying glass. So that's what I did. So a magnifying <laughs> glass you made. Yep. Fantastic. <laughs> I'm, I'm quite new to the building. I'm quite new to the groups. I'm quite new to understanding how FO works. Mm-hmm. Friends of the Earth. Trying not to use acronyms before I've explained them. Good idea. So can you tell me what what is Friends of the Earth? What's your kind of understanding of how this place works? Gosh, that's such a big question. Um, Like there's Friends of the Earth Melbourne. There's Friends of the Earth Australia. There's Friends of the Earth Scotland. There's, it's like a network um, and a lot of it's very autonomous, but kind of working together on like collective values and, you know, there will be cooperation. Like I know Friends of the Earth Melbourne, which is the one that I have the most experience with, has different campaigns, but also supports Victorian communities, as well as we have some uh, Friends of the Earth Australia and Friends of the Earth International staff, like, in this office. So it really kind of supports how, like, different states do have different problems. Um, I mean, we all have the collective problem of federal inaction on climate change, as well as a bunch of other human rights and environmental issues. Worldwide inaction on climate change, yeah. Yeah, but um, in regards to, like, the Victorian government, we do need to have a... Victorian focus, which is why we're friends of the Earth Melbourne. Mm-hmm. At least that's my interpretation. <laughs> that makes sense. And that, that does help sort of understand what the purpose of this group is, why this building is here, and what people inside of it are doing. Mm. Now, with Act on Climate, you know, you described it as kind of like the, this scrappy kind of <laughs> new campaign. Relatively, compared to some others, like uh, the uh, nuclear-free one you mentioned, like that's way older than we are. I mm. think um, Act on Climate, I think, began in 2017. Um at the start of 2017, I've been in the campaign since the end of 2017. But in regards to, yeah, age, that's new for a yeah, campaign. Yeah, that, that is quite quite young for a campaign group. Mm. 
because these things do take a while to sort of build up head of steam and a core group of people and people do drop off as they get busy then they come back and they go and they come back and yeah and like i mean if it's often um you can tell kind of the relative age of a campaign based on its goals like if a, a campaign is you know in three weeks x is happening we want to stop that then it's obviously um gonna be a bit younger but we have this uh one of our main campaign goals is to get a climate budget established so just to give a bit of background on that uh the state government has to set a state budget. So this is how it's going to spend all of the money that we give it in our taxes. And uh, often they'll theme it. So it's going to be like infrastructure or domestic violence or something like that. And we want them to make a climate themed budget. And so when it's set, when I do say themed, I mean, it's um, every section of the budget incorporates that thing. And so it's a funny thing to do. It's like, like trying to make a house party a bit more fun. You apply a theme to it. This is how they're, yeah, spending yeah. a bunch of taxpayer dollars. I, I really like it. Yeah, um, it does make honest. it more ex- approachable. I think it, well, I think it reflects how everything in society is interconnected. Like, mm. I mean, looking at the domestic violence issue, you can't address that really complex social problem if you only give specific funding mm. to, to it in, like, a, a singular package. Like, we have to look at how, like, you know, in, infrastructure – People don't immediately think domestic violence and infrastructure, but they're connected. You know, so mm-hmm. if you have safer modelled streets, then you know it's you know it's going to influence people's lives at home. Mm-hmm. And yeah, the same thing for climate. So um, as we know, climate is like it's pretty much as like cross society as you can get because it's the environment and mm-hmm. it's the air we're breathing. It's foundational. Mm. Yeah. The government has been spending less money on climate and environment uh, progressively over the past few years in the different budgets. This isn't in line with what we know scientifically about the environment and climate. We should be spending more because if you like, you know, you can cut funding now, but it's going to come back to bite you later. Mm-hmm. So really, if you want to save money, uh, spend up big now on climate and we won't be spending trillions on, you know, trying to escape this rising sea levels yep, or like survive heat waves or yep. food scarcity. Or leave the planet. Yeah. Worst case scenario. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like not to get to the deep end, but yep, yep the planet. Yep. So, yeah, we, we want the state budget to be climate-themed. So I think that's a pretty good goal. <laughs> yeah. So th- was that – that is the primary goal of Act on Climate right now? Oh, sorry. That's, like – that's one of our key campaigns. The other one, the Victorian opposition campaign. So uh, as you know, but perhaps not some of the listeners, the Victorian Liberal Party doesn't have a climate policy and they're running for election. And we don't really understand how you can run for election in 2018 – if you don't have a fairly fundamental part of policy, which is climate, um, climate is already impacting Victorians, like extreme bushfires, worsening drought seasons, uh, even like spread of diseases and what crops will grow. And if they don't have a policy for this, how can they run a state? So we are asking Matthew Guy, who is the leader of the Liberal Party, to present his climate policy because otherwise, yeah, how can you run for the state election if you don't have this? So that's the campaign that I'm kind of focused on at the moment. And why did that appeal to you? How did you get involved with this? Did you already know that you were interested in politics and the intersection of climate change and politics? Yeah. You thought, oh, this group does that. (laughs) I'll jump in there. Well, this one's fairly urgent, I feel, um, because if, you know, November comes around and we have a government that doesn't even, it doesn't even address climate change in its policy, that's going to be pretty bad for Victorian communities. 
Like what's going to happen for investment in renewables? What's going to happen for the communities who are at risk from bushfires? So that's the reason why at the moment I'm focusing my attention on the opposition campaign. I love the climate budget campaign and I, you know, contribute to it where I can. But this is the one which like, you know, the clock's ticking at the moment. And I grew up in Latrobe Valley, which is the state's kind of coal area. Um, and so... The Pennsylvania, Victoria, <laughs> I like to call it. Yeah, I hadn't thought of it that way, but uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so kind of having grown up, seeing the economic impacts of the coal industry, people say, oh, it creates jobs and creates growth. They haven't visited Maui recently because um, this is an area that's suffering because of, you know, a number of things, but one of them was the privatisation of the energy industry. So instead of it being state-run, it's uh, run by, you know, corporations which are looking to make profits and unfortunately the community isn't always at the they're not always the priority of these corporations uh and so i kind of grew up seeing like the impacts of this as well as being regionally based um bushfires and droughts were a big thing and droughts are kind of these these long disasters that kind of unfold and i was lucky that my family's kind of income didn't rely on the land. Otherwise, I'm sure I'd have many more dramatic stories about it. We would have to purchase water because we would run out of water and our horses would have nothing to drink and well, we would have nothing to drink. Um, some very smelly summers with some very short showers. Uh, oh, no. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Dark times. And also, yeah, the bushfires. Um, you know, I remember Black Saturday. I was, I don't know how old I was, but I was pretty young. And uh, we spent the entire day kind of, we had this news that, you know, the fire was getting closer and closer, but the wind change was scheduled and when was the wind change going to come through? And uh, we had our kind of evacuation time. And if the wind change didn't happen by then, then we were going to leave. And I just remember over the course of the day, it started out really, like the sky was blue. Like it's one of those days where it, the sky seems weirdly blue. And in the distance to the uh, west, <laughs> yeah, to the west, this big column of like black smoke just started going up and... You know, normally when you see bushfires in regional Australia, it's kind of like a, a thing in the distance. Like, oh, yep, there's the, the smoke goes up and it kind of filters that way. But this just took up the entire sky until the entire sky was black and then it went orange because it was getting so close and this the smoke was so low. It wasn't the smoke anymore. It was the fire inside it. Yeah. It lighting the smoke for you. We didn't quite have it. ember attack, but someone who lived nearby, they did get embers. Um, sorry, for people who don't know what ember attack is, that's when bits of burning material will start like landing raining from the sky on you and that's when spot fires will then develop mm -hmm. and so i remember like everything was then orange and i was starting to freak out because i was like a kid and um yeah, it's apocalyptic stuff oh, it's it was so crazy it's like there was also there was so much like adrenaline as well because it's the first time i'd ever really been in that sort of situation and um you know I, I remember I had my, my box of stuff because we had like, we never knew when a fire was going to happen. So that summer I had my box of like things to save, which, you know, for me then was like toy horse and, you know, the obligatory photo album that my parents had made me put in the box. <laughs> and I remember I had, like, I'd put the box into the car and it's the first time I'd ever had to put the box in the car and we'd filled up the bathtub with water because we had our generator for pumping water if the electricity failed. And that would be to spray the house and everything. But we wanted the bathtub full of water just because, you know, we were going to have to drink water. Mm -hmm. So that's where we would fill up our drink bottles and everything. And, uh, like, we went around the outside spraying the house, but the fire was getting closer and closer. And, you know, everyone's looking at their watches. 
And then half an hour before our scheduled, yep, we're going to evacuate time, the wind change came through. And so my dad and I climbed up on the roof and we were just watching kind of the smoke as it went back. It went from like the reverse in the morning. It went from orange to black. And then we could see like blue on the horizon as the sky, this entire black sky started getting pushed away by the wind change. And uh, then we started seeing like the lightning come down because these super fire kind of systems will create their own weather. And we decided uh, lightning probably shouldn't be on the roof now. So we hopped off pretty quick after that. Wow. I can see why that's kind of seared into your memory as a Mm. kid. I mean, what, like the sky changed color six times that day. Yeah. Wow. (laughs) And then lightning. And so, yeah, these fires, like climate change isn't like a a theoretical thing to me. Climate change is a thing that happened (laughs) and Mm. is happening now. You know, it's like a, it physically changes the world around you. Mm. And You know, people like to think that, oh, you know, we're separate somehow to nature. Oh, it's hot outside. I'll come in and I'll turn on the air conditioner. But, you know, the smoke's getting in the house and, you know, all the light has gone out of the world because this big black cloud has blocked out the sun. So, you know, you really, we're a bit more uh, attached to the environment than we like to think. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. And we're not not insulated at all, which I, (laughs) myself, living in South Bank in an apartment, forget that sometimes. Yeah. Just to play devil's advocate for people thinking like, oh, well, that's a really dramatic story, but it's also life in Australia, right? Like bushfires have always been a part of the history here, but climate change is affecting that because that can be more severe than it's ever been or more frequent is the worrying thing. Yeah. And we're just not set up to cope with that. I mean, your house, but for 30 minutes, doesn't matter how much you've doused it in water, that protects you from embers. Mm. But if the fire arrived at your house, not a thing in the world could have stopped it. Nothing any human or collection of humans could have done to save your house and and family property. Yeah. I mean, that is, that's a good point. Like people like to say, Oh, Australia fires, they happen, but we are seeing this like worsening, worsening fire seasons as uh, we continue to burn fossil fuels and uh, you know, think it's not going to come back to bite us. Australia actually had to add another section to our kind of rating scale for bushfires, uh, catastrophic, so, and there's nowhere to go from catastrophic. No, right? no. Like, what's what's going to be next? Extra double, catastrophic? Double catastrophic. <laughs> catastrophic 2.0? <laughs> I don't know. But, like, I think that's a pretty clear indicator that things are getting worse, seeing as we had to add a whole extra scale. And, like, you're driving around regionally. I mean, I don't see them that often in the city, but, you know, there's the um, kind of the scale of fire risk for that day. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, like, I mean, the lowest you get in some places is, like, medium. So you're yes. always at medium risk of a bushfire. Even in, like, winter, you're never quite sure. But uh, it goes, you know, medium, strong, extreme, or whatever that state yep. is. Uh, and then, yeah, catastrophic, which is, like, red with black lines in it, just to emphasise the fact that you don't want to be here when that's happening. So, yeah, alongside all of the scientific data, um, for people who, like, want to... Sorry. for all of, like Alongside all the scientific data, that's a pretty clear indication that, yeah... Fire system's getting worse, and it's because of us. I'll, have to, I'll pull up a photo of that and put it in the show notes of just <laughs> cool. what our fire indicators look like. Yeah. So what I thought was maybe a bit of a tongue-in-cheek question being like, was so is this like the perfect thing you're looking for, expecting you maybe like to fall into act on climate, you know, a bit of by accident, a bit by happenstance and stuff. But this really was right at the nexus of your personal experiences mm-hmm. as a kid and what you wanted to do. So how did you find act on climate? I've kind of been hanging around uh friends of the earth since 2015 i think 
I kind of became a kind of climate campaigner through the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, which is uh, Australia's largest youth-led organisation, I'm fairly certain, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, you're the second interview today with, <laughs> with experiences at AYCC. It's like such a great incubator for, oh, I hope you for the rock stars. Some, I hope you interview some people from AYCC because they're great. Definitely. Well, we're great, I guess, because like, <laughs> I am one of them. Alumnus, <laughs> yes. Yep. Not yet. You're in there till you're 27, and I'm not 27 yet. So. Very good. You haven't aged out. They haven't kicked you out no. of the group. <laughs> yeah, and so... I basically just applied to volunteer with everyone. I was such a young campaigner. I didn't really know who was doing what. So I'm like, I'll just do everything. Because I was from Latrobe Valley, I kind of applied with the quick coal at Friends of the Earth. Because, you know, coal, Latrobe Valley is yeah. pretty uh, Connections right there. Yeah. I don't know how, but uh, instead of kind of doing my initial kind of greeting to Friends of the Earth, instead of it um, being someone from quick coal, it ended up being uh, Lee from Yes to Renewables. Because I was new to campaigning, I always thought that was so impressive that, like, the leader of the campaign would come and get coffee with some random kid from uh, Latrobe Valley. <laughs> and so I remember thinking, like, wow, they're so down to earth. And, you know, having now spent some more time, I'm like, yeah, they're pretty down to earth, the Friends of the Earth folks. It was just such a good introduction to kind of grassroots activism and, like, community-based and, you know, uh, the, the non-hierarchical structure of Friends of the Earth really appeals to me because... You know, you do have a lot of uh, kind of organisations that do, they try to create change in society by kind of replicating the very power structures that have caused so many of these problems. Um, so having a hierarchical system, trying to fight a hierarchical system doesn't make a lot of sense to me. So yeah, the non-hierarchy is, uh, I love that. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a really good explanation of, yeah, how these groups do differ from structures we're used to, especially, you know, Growing up in a traditional way, like my school was hierarchical. Mm. All the jobs I've had are very hierarchical. This is like the first example I've seen of that kind of flatter structure yeah. in practice. And it's it's great to see. How did you get exposed to the idea that, that activism and volunteering was something you could do? This is, I find this question really interesting. Um, and I actually asked most activists I meet, you know, how did you get involved with this? Because like looking back, I see a lot of times when I could have, not. Entered campaigning actually. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. Like when I showed like uh, an affinity for like like change making, for lack of a better term. Um, I tried to get my school to allow girls to wear pants because we had to wear these big skirts that were awful, to be honest, and to like allow uh, trans students to ha you know wear their uniform of choice. Mm -hmm. And um, I was in like year seven or something at the time. And so I didn't really know how to create change. And so I just like, just straight up sent a letter to my principal and they were like, you know, it's like, dear student, nah, you know, love the <laughs> principal. And it didn't go anywhere from that because I didn't, I had no idea like about petitioning or, you know, talking to fellow students. And this is one of those times when I would have wished I'd met the AYCC mm. like then. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, if, if now I met a student who's like, oh, I'm trying to get my school to do, um, to get rid of you know, compulsory types of uniform, I would be like, great, let's figure out, you know, who else in your year level cares about this? Let's figure out which, you know, teachers and parents are sympathetic yeah, to this. some levers we can start to pull. Let's, let's figure yeah. out how, like, where do they source their uniform? Like, and how can we find a, a different source which is, you know, better or whatever like that. But I just didn't know anyone. So when that died, I was like, oh, well, that sucks and just continued on my merry way. And then I went to uni and... 
there was lots of activist groups there, but I lived so far away and a lot of them didn't really facilitate kind of being involved from a distance. So mm-hmm. again, that was a missed opportunity. Like I don't think there was an AYCC at my campus, mm-hmm. which probably made a difference. Um, and really the reason uh, I, I just look back and I think all these missed opportunities, you know, like I could have been doing this for ages. So why didn't I, but it just, the, the, the drive and the actual um, community who was doing it, I just didn't quite connect mm-hmm. until I graduated from uni with a bachelor of arts in um, majoring in human rights and environmental science, because I got about halfway through my uni course and I realized climate change was a thing and that, you know, my uni didn't offer a specific climate change course. So I just kind of ended up making my own mm-hmm. and human rights and environmental science. They're the two areas which kind of climate change sits in the middle. And so that's what I ended up studying. And I was looking for jobs, tricky finding a climate related job when that's, when I didn't even know that's what I was looking for, but that's how I hard to find something (laughs) when you don't know you're looking for. I was doing my best though. And so that's how I found uh, the AYCC. And I just sent them an email going, you know, what's this campaigning climate business that you guys seem to be doing? They were like, Oh, great. You know, you seem keen. Uh, We're going to Sydney uh, to tell banks not to invest in climate change. Come with us. And I was like, Oh goodness. Okay. And I ended up on this bus with all these people and I had never met before. And I was like, oh, who are these, these rabble rousers and everything? But they were a great bunch. And I came back and that's when I started emailing everyone going, let me volunteer with you. I like this. I want to change stuff. And um, then I just kind of naturally graduated to Friends of the Earth. I can see that trajectory <laughs> working. That's fantastic. Yep. <laughs> so it all started with an email. Yep. And a crazy bunch of <laughs> activist folks going up to Sydney and, uh, you know, Rattling some bars. <laughs> Fantastic. Wow. Jeez. Um, <laughs> I can follow that trajectory there, but like, wh- why do you think all the way back at middle school, mm. like, why did you want to make that change? Why did you want to kind of stick your head up and make a, a noise about something? Because I've noticed that really strongly here in Australia. People don't like standing out mm. unless it's when one of the acceptable things to do, like you're good at footy. Yeah. Then you're very happy to take the plaudits for that. But to be uh, seen as a troublemaker, you know, like, it's funny. We've got this very strong, like, oh, we're all rowdy larrikins, rule breakers and stuff. But no, we're a very yeah. law-abiding country. We're rowdy larrikins as long as we do it all together and no one gets separated from the bunch. In a socially bunch. acceptable way. Yep, yeah. Yeah. Because if anyone gets separated, then we will turn on them and punish them. <laughs> Not to be dramatic. <laughs> So what what happened with you? Like, why are, why were you different? Well, I think it's fairly simple. I just didn't like skirts that much, you know, because I've always been very outdoors-ish. And um, at my school, there was this great big hill where you'd uh, the boys would all get, or, you know, the boys or the students who could have, you know, pants on, they would all get bits of cardboard. I don't know where from. They probably just nicked it from the arts department or something. Uh, and they would slide down this big hill. And I could never do that. I did uh, ask a question kind of in front of the whole class because the principal came in and deigned us with their presence. And uh, so I said, well, why can't we all wear pants if we want? And they went, oh, well, wouldn't that mean that the boys, oh, they get to wear skirts? And I was like, so? And it was just silence because it didn't occur to them that this wouldn't be a big deal. Like, <laughs> who cares what someone wears as long as they're happy and, you mm-hmm. know, they it's get to... It's all fabric. Exactly. So um, I think... I was just, it was just illogical to me that we didn't have this option. It was this illogical set of rules. And I'm kind of similar now, the older I get, you, you know, you look at the, the government and how they're so close to the fossil fuel industry and how that's resulted in, you know, we have a, a police force, which is 
oftentimes employed for the fossil fuel industry. And that doesn't make any sense to me because, you know, we've got moral law. If someone's in trouble, you take care of them. If someone's destroying the river that we drink water from, get them to stop. And so I don't know why we have all of our structures of society and the legal system and everything is defending the people who are destroying the river, who are destroying Mm -hmm. the air. That's, I, that doesn't make sense to me. No. If I had to like put a title on this interview right now, I'd be like, oh, this is Kate, the common sense campaigner. <laughs> yes. And that's a really powerful motivator, and I completely agree with where you're coming from. But there's so many times you get wrapped up in a campaign, it becomes like a, you kind of lose the forest for the trees a little bit because mm. you're, you're dealing with personalities or you're, you're, you, get like, you, know, you get down in the trench and you can't see the horizon anymore. But yeah. what you said about you know, the skirts, especially, like, it, it made sense to you as a kid. Yep. And so you want to do something about it. Like, with climate change right now, like, I want a safe climate for my grandkids. Mm. That's why I want to do something about it. Like, you've kept that level of common sense about it, which is really clarifying. And it must be <laughs> kind of easy to keep perspective in that way. I find society to be very perplexing sometimes. Like, I was thinking about the questions that you sent through, and I think one of them was, you know, why are you a campaigner or some variation? And... I find that a really hard question to answer because I don't get why people aren't campaigners. Like someone saying, um, why are you a campaigner? No one says, why do you go to work? It's like, I go to work because I need money so I can eat. Why are you a campaigner? Because a bunch of rich, powerful white men have made a bunch of illogical rules for society and they're destroying the planet with them. That doesn't make any sense to me. So I'm a campaigner. (laughs) And I think it's a much more interesting question to ask people, why aren't they campaigners? You know? Yeah. Also, if I pulled somebody random (laughs) off the street and say, why aren't you a campaigner? They would give me the blankest look ever. Like, I've never considered (laughs) it. Yeah. Well, that's your problem right there. And not to get like, uh, you know, off on a tangent, but um, like the question, you know, why are you a campaigner? When you start breaking it down, it's like, you know, why do you take political action? Which you think is a fair question. But the thing is, everyone every day is always taking political action by you know spending money at certain companies or by working in certain jobs or by you know voting for certain people on specific days and it's also like the stuff that you don't do kind of it will reinforce current power structures it's uh like that phrase the standard you walk past is the standard you live by i think Mm. or the standard you hold that's the thing like when you've got a minority that's being oppressed the people who look away and don't do anything about it Mm -hmm. they're supporting the power structure that is oppressing that minority. And often we're benefiting from that. Um, Just in white Australia, you know, we're benefiting off, uh, you know, hundreds of years of kind of oppression of the indigenous people of this country. And people think that not doing anything is a non-political act, but it's not. It's a political act that supports the power structure based on this oppression. (laughs) So that's why when you say, why are you a campaigner? It's really... (laughs) I like unpack- unpacking that question because there's, it's a bit deeper. <laughs> that was a good job analyzing that. Uh, and another sort of version of that phrase, and, you know, like whatever you won't stand up against, you you condone. Mm. You know, if you're not opposing something, you're condoning it. You're enabling it. I'm just curious about where you, where still that, that mindset came from because it seems so obvious once you have it. Mm. But I think if you never get told that your actions are inherently political that politics isn't something you just do on polling days, Mm. that politics itself isn't just those people in that building arguing over 
yeah. vague and arbitrary laws and regulations. I think that requires a, a deeper understanding of the society we live in and the system we live in than most people have because most people, well, it's not in the benefit. <laughs> it's not to the benefit of the society for people to really understand the system we're in. So, mm. like, as, as a kid, what, were, what was your kind of childhood like with your parents exposing you to how the world works? Like, was this something that you noticed differences between you and your friends on the things you noticed or would comment on? at school I was in a pretty unique position um in that my mum taught at my school and she taught ethics so the fact you had an ethics class alone and your mum was an ethics teacher yeah I was kind of um bingo in a very good position to get education about ethics uh and so you know both at school and you know in the car on the way to school we would have um discussions about you know slavery and genocide and uh even things like the diamond trade and you know some people they don't want to talk about this stuff because it's really deep and dark and you know thinking about poverty and how you know the company that i bought my shoes from yesterday uh those shoes are made by slaves yeah or don't don't take my wedding ring this joyous thing Mm. with your facts (laughs) yeah well and that and that was again um that was an odd thing about my school was that uh, at the same time, we were studying the diamond trade, which is, of course, um, based on, uh, like, horrific violence um, and slavery. At the same time we were studying that, uh, we had the, the prom, and the theme of that was diamonds are forever. So, and that, again, pinged my <laughs> illogical, like, what the hell, you know? What is this cognitive dissonance? You guys are yeah. just blindly walking past. And it was probably the, um, like, the education helps, but also just, like, the, the massive incongruence that was in the world uh i I couldn't not see it i think that's just you know i think yeah some people's i don't know um but anyway so my mom taught ethics but and my dad worked at a uni and he taught outdoor education so he taught uh um people about how to take students out onto rivers so he would have a bunch of students teaching them how to take students out onto kayaking trips or you know go into the mountains or go snorkeling and so I was kind of, I was getting a really good foundational layer of um, like education and also experience in uh, human rights and in the environment. And we didn't really talk about climate change. That wasn't really something that was on my kind of family's radar. But um, when I went to uni and I started learning about these things more in depth, the, uh, the issue that kept coming up both in my human rights course and in my environment course was climate change. Mm-hmm. Until in about, uh, early in my second year, I suddenly went, oh, wait, hang on, the climate change is in both of my courses. I should possibly pay it a bit more attention. And then it was uni that really kind of connected the dots for me. And um, I graduated uni focused on climate change. When at the start, I hadn't had really, that wasn't a target of mine. Yeah. Looking back, do you think your parents knew about climate change and didn't really want to bring it up with you or it was going to be too heavy or too complicated or too potentially just like dramatic? I'm not really sure. Like, Hmm. that's not something I've ever really asked them. I think it's kind of how it's... It's on a lot of people's radar, but it's just not a top priority. Um, Mm -hmm. Like, other things happen in life, like, you know, mortgages, jobs, um, that sort of thing. And they definitely knew about it, but it just didn't come up in conversation. True. I mean, like, looking at it from their perspective, if I've got some tangible skills to teach, like your dad, you know, getting out in the river... To either teach my daughter practical skills that I can impart directly or talk about this somewhat vague, abstract thing that mm. 
know, it's his, it's probably the late mid nineties at this point kind of thing where it's yeah. just like, yeah, this is this is pre uh, an inconvenient truth. Yeah, this is still in that kind of halcyon days of like, oh yeah, climate change is something we should worry about down the track. Well, I kind of I do try to remember my kind of privilege as a a, a white kind of middle class if we still have classes like Australian um, is that like I've had a lot of opportunities uh, to get an education that's not available to everyone uh, so I don't want to judge people who have uh, like less opportunities than I do um, and also like historically I've had family members who've worked in the fossil fuel industry and a lot of my family's money has come from uh, you know relatives older relatives who have worked in the fossil fuel industry and that wasn't even something that I knew until like I was in uni, but I think it's that's something you wouldn't have really had an opinion on as well until uni. It's been yeah. Like, oh, okay, that's like my granddad owned a farm, or my granddad owned a trucking company, or my granddad worked in a coal mine. Like same, same. Yeah. So it's kind of it's it's yeah. I can never really figure out why I ended up in campaigning. I just know that I ended up here. <laughs> yeah. But I am, like, the only kind of climate campaigner in my family. Mm. So, but I'm giving them an education. <laughs> You're a solid beachhead into that, <laughs> that career path. Yep. That's great. And I hope I didn't sort of over-index on the childhood thing, but, like, I'm just always fascinated about it because my my father doesn't really believe much in climate change or, mm. you know, not anywhere near his list of priorities. Very conservative. Yep. And my mom will, will talk about it and she'll say how worrying it is, but then, you know, book flights without a second thought. Yeah. It's like, I'm not sure there's a lot of dissonance going on there. So like for me, I had to really come into it by myself, which meant a lot later. Yeah. And then it was a lot of just being freaked out without knowing <laughs> what to do. Yeah. So it's always kind of fascinating for me hearing other people's childhoods perspectives on this. And that's great, but not saying that anything from your childhood meant that it takes away from what you've chosen to do and what you've sacrificed to do really in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, I don't know. There's lots of people who have very similar backgrounds to me who don't, you know, do things about climate change, who don't take action on climate change. Um, And there's people who have, you know, completely different backgrounds to me and they are the most amazing climate campaigners you'd ever meet. So I think a lot of it is, I mean, you can't really um, pin the decision to take political action on, like, something to do with someone's past or it's Mm. it's not like this... uh, inevitable trajectory whether or not you're going to be politically like consciously politically active um yeah and i i get a bit i guess annoyed sometimes when people think about like you know what made you make yeah, this decision yeah. it's like well nothing made me make this decision it's my personal choice i'm going to take responsibility for it so and i think like that sort of thinking is how a lot of people justify not doing anything it's yeah like, oh well, you know i didn't know and i wasn't taught to take action and yeah yeah like by now, most people in um, at least kind of Western society, because I don't want to talk for other societies, mm-hmm. but most people can be expected to know about, you know, poverty and about, you know, human rights violations and about, you know, environmental destruction equals bad. Like uh, some people can't do anything about it. And I want to respect that, like for legal reasons or for like financial reasons, they, they can't do anything. They have to, you know, focus on themselves and their family. And I get that. But most people can. And, you know, most of the people who are going to make excuses, like, I don't have time, they do have time. Or like, oh, it just makes me so emotional. It's like, do you think 
the, the minorities suffering because of, you know, choices that our government have made? Um, do you think they get to, you know, take time out because they're too emotional? Like, do you think that the people on, uh, you know, uh, the islands in the, in the Pacific that are going underwater, they don't get to go, oh, stop the climate change for a sec. I'm too emotional right now. Like, if that's a reason to do something is because it's getting under your skin, you know? The reason yeah. you're having that response is because something bad is happening, so do something about it, you know? Or timely for this conversation and what Act on Climate's doing all the time, the decision to vote for a party that doesn't have a climate change position, <laughs> even though you're like, oh, I care about climate change. I care a lot about climate change, but it's probably like, it's, you know, <laughs> it's five in my top five. And I really care about this economic policy that's going to be in place for the next two years before the next change in government, two to four years. I just really care about this <laughs> so much more than climate change right now. Yeah. Like, I, I think we're so far beyond that as well. Like, it's just... Steams, yes. <laughs> steams burnt. Uh. For the listeners, I can see that the face that Mark is making right now, um, it really conveys the frustration. <laughs> Beetroot red. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for that, Kate. You've been very generous with your time. I think we've got to go paint a banner now yes. for an upcoming action, which is going to be great. Yes. It's going to be so good. <laughs> and, yeah, do you have any sort of final thoughts or anything? This is kind of a good, I think, primer for people who may be going through uni and stuff and, and don't know even a vague idea that they want to become a campaigner down the track or they want to get involved in some way. Would you recommend sort of the path you took going through AYCC or other groups like that to kind of get a grounding in this stuff? I mean, I think different people are going to kind of feel a connection to different groups. Another thing I want to say is that climate campaigning isn't specifically for everyone, but, um, you know, some people are going to have more, you know, campaigns that they hold close to them, like um, marriage equality is a big one that, you know, thankfully we've now pa passed equal marriage laws. But uh, I don't think, like, people have to choose climate above everything else. But I think it's keeping this awareness that um, we're all kind of fighting the same well, not the same fight, but we're fighting the same enemy, like this uh, structural power imbalance where, you know, rich, privileged folks um, can pass down, like, damage and destruction on uh, people who can't do anything about it. So uh, we kind of have to have allies in different movements. And so if someone's listening to this and they're like, oh, maybe environment isn't specifically my thing, but, like, damn, I'm going to go get my school to let me wear pants if I want then I think like that's awesome and go for it. And like the best thing people can do is talk to other people, um, especially if they can find a mentor or like a campaign which has those resources and knowledge, uh, that's really valuable. But if you're not like doing climate campaigning, just remember that we are, we're on the same side. You know, we're all fighting this, you know, the capitalist patriarchal system that is causing such a, such a wide range of wide range of problems in society. Fighting for a better world. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. that's what I would say. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kate. No worries. Let's go paint a banner. Woo! <laughs> the Climactic Collective.